This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Welcome to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Leonard DiLorenzo. Today, we want to talk about the whole gospel. And by that, I mean contemplation and action, the Lord's love and our response, life in a parish, and life with the poor. Our guest is Amy Shalide Mayer. Amy is a graduate of Notre Dame's ECHO program, in which she served in catechetical ministry in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee for two years. Afterwards, she lived in a Catholic worker community in South Bend, Indiana, and then she went on to serve as the coordinator of advocacy and social concerns for Catholic charities in Nashville. On the basis of all she's done and learned, we're going to talk about the whole gospel with her today. Amy Shalide Mayer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So as I noted in the intro, in the past decade or so, you've invested yourself in what parish catechetical ministry, living in solidarity with the poor, justice work, especially in advocacy and education. So let's just start off with a big question, okay? Here's the big question. How has this all been part of the same gospel for you? Yeah, you know, when I think about a literal gospel that comes to mind, it's definitely the story of Martha and Mary. And often when my husband and I are presenting in context about Catholic social teaching, we encourage people to be a Martha and a Mary because we think it brings together the contemplative and active parts of our call to discipleship. And as a very busy, overcommitted high school and college and graduate student, (laughs) I related very much to the Martha in the story, um, the activist, the one that's doing the service work that's out with people. But it wasn't until my time situated in a parish um, where I really grew into a deep love for the sacramental and liturgical life of the church. And through catechetical work with especially eighth graders and high school students, Mm. I saw and I was teaching morality both to eighth graders and 10th graders during my time at a parish. And Thank you for your service. Yes. <laughs> yeah, especially with middle school. Uh-huh. I actually love middle school. Uh-huh. But they really needed help making the connection between the importance of prayer, like actually learning the prayers of the church mm-hmm. and putting that faith life into action. And their parents weren't necessarily modeling that for mm. them. And interesting enough, the service component was very exciting for them, and they were eager to move outside of the classroom and have an experience of sorting donations at St. Vincent de Paul or singing Christmas carols at the nursing home. But I found the importance of tying all of this back to the reason why we're doing it, the theological foundation. And Theological reflection was modeled for me in my graduate coursework, and I was able to bring that into my interactions with not just the high schoolers and junior high, but with the adults that I was working with. And so I bring all of this context up because I feel like the parish really formed me to situate my big heart and desire to help people Uh into really a life of prayer and a sacramental richness that without, I would totally have burned out during my my four years and really more like six years in the Catholic worker community. There were some days where it's like there were five reasons why I probably wanted to quit mm-hmm. and, and move out. But 
because I had started my day with the Eucharist with my community at Mass that morning, or I knew we were ending an evening prayer, it like bookended my day. And I just saw it flowing so closely one in and out of the other. And Dorothy Day is known for saying that the Mass is the work. And people would be surprised by that because the works of mercy, you would think, are the work. That's the work, right? This right. is before the work or after right. the work. She, says the she mass would say is the, the Mass is the work um, because it's doing that work of showing up and letting God work on you mm-hmm. that allows you to have the energy, the compassion, the patience, the hope to move forward into difficult situations. So that's kind of the context of like the gospel context Mm -hmm. of how I feel like I operate. And I would definitely say sometimes it's a pendulum where I'm swinging kind of between the Martha and the Mary complex. And sometimes that can be an oversimplistic analogy or rendition of that understanding of that parable. But it's been very helpful for me and to think about how even within the context of a day, how can I make sure that I'm holding these two facets of discipleship together? Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of renditions of that that gospel example. Let's say sometimes it gets reduced to like, well, you got to take time for yourself, and you got to spend time for others, and you have to do these two things. But you're bringing up Dorothy Day and this strange emphasis on the mass as the work, which is to say, here is the primary activity, which is itself contemplation, mm-hmm. and its fruits emerge from there. So it undoes that. But I want to ask you about you know you say the parish is the setting where you kind of learned to put the big heart into, to have a context, to have a place for it to be refreshed. You're talking about your service in a parish, right? Yeah. Um, And this was in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, Milwaukee. right? So you're part of a graduate service program, Mm -hmm. um, the ECHO program in Notre Dame, little promo there. Why did you want to serve in a parish after you graduated from college? Yeah. Nobody asks, you know, when people are going off to to college, not a lot of them say, well, afterwards I want to go serve in a parish, but that's what you did. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, it is what I did. And I remember I was not considering Echo. I was looking at doing something big. Like that, (laughs) I remember saying, like, I want to do something big. And I was a French and sociology major, so Echo actually didn't seem like a natural path Mm. to my parents and to people kind of objectively who would hear my story. And I was thinking about the Peace Corps and going to like Francophone Africa or Haiti, somewhere where I could use my French and help people in need. Um, or I was looking at one or two or three year service programs that mostly would be abroad or in like a very immersive environment with the poor, with people in need. I really wanted to do something big. Yeah. And then I thought, well, I need to at least apply to ECHO. And as I was filling out the application and thinking about spending time in a parish, not knowing where I would go um, at all in the country, I really felt this voice. I kind of forgot about this moment, like in prayer, saying, Amy, this is big. Hmm. And like this, you need to pay attention to this. Like this is a big thing. And my senior year, I was very much thinking about Catholic social teaching. I signed up as an elective just to take a 200-level Catholic social teaching class. I was not a major. I was not a theology major, so it was just a free class I wanted to take. And in taking that class, I realized I had excellent Catholic education, K through 12, very active in the parish. My parents were very active growing up in our parish. I had never learned about Catholic social teaching. I had never 
broken open the gospel through the lens of Catholic social teaching. I'd never heard of Christ being among the poor, like just being told explicitly that Christ made his home among the poor until I was reading the social doctrine of the church, the compendium, and writers such as Dorothy Day. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm very refreshed and energized by this, and I want to invigorate a parish with this like news of social justice. Mm-hmm. So I was maybe a little bit idealistic, thinking I was going to go, like, be the voice of social justice to a parish. And it took me about two weeks to realize (laughs) I didn't know everything at the parish. And I needed to learn the landscape of the community before I could start preaching to them and claiming, like, knew everything. Um, And I learned I was never going to be preaching at them, but working with them. Mm -hmm. So I think my energy and excitement about social teaching and realizing parish life was a big next step that I could be a part of was exciting to me. It just felt like a very good fit. So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but I the big thing was Kenosha, Wisconsin, after (laughs) all, right? Not francophone. It was, yeah, Yeah. and just meeting real life people that are navigating these difficult decisions every day about how they spend their time and how they spend their resources and who they help, um, who our parish reaches out to, and I was able to kind of bring people together who were asking these questions and. I remember talking at the end of a mass about Catholic social teaching, and I had 35 people sign up over the course of the weekend to join a social justice ministry at the parish Mm. that I was starting. And I waited like five months before I did this because I wanted to learn about the needs of the parish. And actually, they had done a survey the year before, and they didn't do anything with the results to say, like, what does the parish offer? What doesn't it offer? Where are the gaps? And the sociology major in me was like, who's processing this data? Yeah, this is gold. So, yeah. Yeah. So I asked for all the surveys, a big stack of papers. Which were in English, not French. But nevertheless, you're using half your education. Yes, exactly. It was perfect. I could tell my parents my sociology degree is fit to work. And so I actually like summed up all of the like surveys and I came up with this plan on how to address all of the kind of needs that the parishioners Mm. expressed. Who would do it? What program would do it? The time commitment, proposal of kind of timeline for addressing this need. The pastor allowed me to present it to the parish council. So I did that. Granted, a lot of the like who would do this fell to me because they were like, oh, you've perceived the need. Good. You can do it. And one of them was like a social justice ministry. I think they called it human like outreach or something kind of vague. Uh And so I decided to take that and run with it as one of the many facets. I also did adult faith formation, young adult ministry, and some other things. But there was a lot of life. There was great response. And I had 35 people sign up, come to an initial meeting. And from that, we decided kind of the four different directions we wanted to take our ministry. So that was a huge impact like on my own life to learn how to listen to people mm-hmm. and listen to their interests and needs. And then to also see like, well, what am I most interested in out of all of these different options? And it was definitely formative for me in my own vocational path. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Amy Schleid Mayer about the sacramental life, evangelization, and justice work. So the parish became a place of formation for you. You went there to serve and in some ways you thought to provide and that gift was reciprocated. It, mm-hmm. it formed you more fully in a Catholic life. 
I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago about the Catholic social teaching and that simple but profound thing you learned there, that Christ made his home among the poor. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring that up because afterwards you went and intentionally made your home among the poor, joining the Catholic worker community in South Bend, Indiana, Mm -hmm. St. Peter Claver, Catholic worker. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us about that experience. Why, Why did you feel called to make your home there among the poor, to share your life with those who are sharing their life together in, mm-hmm. those, in that place. Yeah. Well, during my time in Echo, I had the opportunity to join a Just Faith group mm-hmm. at my housemate's parish, which was also very educational around kind of all the different social justice issues in our parish and in our church. And what I realized was at the end of the day, even though I cared a lot about these issues, I could still go home. I could mm. eat whatever I wanted. I could travel wherever I wanted. I could purchase whatever I wanted. And I felt like I needed a system of accountability and some boundaries put on that freedom. So my second year of Echo, I actually put myself on a Lenten food budget where I only gave myself a certain amount of money to spend on food for wow. all of Lent. I didn't know how much money to guess, and so I think I really under-budgeted. So by the end, I was I was scraping by. But I remember a friend invited me to go out to dinner, and I said, sure. But then I had to get a side salad and water mm. because I realized if I spent $10, $20, that's like a week of my yeah. budget. And that experience, my second year of Echo, really crystallized for me that I need support and community to help me live these practices of simple living, voluntary poverty, really true detachment and trust in God's providence. And I was thinking about moving back to South Bend and looking for jobs. And actually, one of the co-founders of The Catholic Worker invited me to come visit and stay. Always a dangerous invitation. I know. Yeah. I felt such joy, yeah, like so much joy there. And it's messy and it smelled. And there were some people that were not acting normal, you know, when I visited that were probably under the influence of something. Then they're showing up to our house at dinner. But I just felt so joyful in it. I remember Mother Teresa's spiritual director had said, use joy as your compass. Mm. And I was like, well, this doesn't quite make sense to earn a (laughs) master's and then go move into a Catholic worker where I'm not paid. And in fact, I'm contributing to the community financially if I can. And my brother, so funny, as a graduation gift from the director of Echo, I received a business card holder. And my brother said, who are you going to give your business cards to? (laughs) Like the people on the street that you meet Uh at the drop-in center? And I was like, I don't know, but this seems like the best next step. And it was because it grounded me in prayer. And it also, I didn't have to worry about my basic needs. Mm -hmm. They were met, like food, shelter was met. And it freed me to be able to give of my time, to give of my love and compassion. And There's a safety that comes in community. I don't recommend that everyone open their door to people in need on the street. But when you're living in community, there's just safety with that. There Mm. were things I would never have done if I was a 25-year-old woman living living in South Bend by myself. But in the community, I could open the door at midnight and feel okay about that. Mm. You know, I could talk to men two, three times my age and feel very empowered to be in relationship with them under, of course, appropriate caution and in certain circumstances like safety. But 
I absolutely felt like it was an outgrowth of my time in Echo because I wanted to be in a community that kind of forced me to live in a certain way, to instill these values um, and to support me when it would have been easy to quit. How did um, you know an intentional community like that, a specific place and way to live, change the way you saw the city you were living in and the people that you shared this city with? Yes. It changed it dramatically because my point of orientation had been the campus of Notre Dame, and then all of a sudden it was downtown South Bend. And there were often days when I did not leave a mile radius. Like I, everything was on foot, the grocery store, the church, the post office, our drop-in center. So it made it very small. And I mm. began to know everyone on the on the streets. Well, they knew you because I would walk down the they streets with me. you sometimes. And yep. people would be yelling from every direction, hey, Amy, or yep. Boss Lady, was, they yep. would call you that. Yeah, Boss Lady. Hey, Boss Lady. And then my mom came to visit. We went out for dinner one night, and we were walking through an alley, and my mom I was a little nervous. I said, Mom, don't worry. I know everyone here. And no joke, as soon as I said that, this guy on his bike turned the corner. He's like, oh, Amy, hey, is this your mom? Um, and so my mom said, you know, I'm not as worried about you anymore walking around because you know everyone. Yeah. And they're all looking out for you, yeah. which was true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was a it was a beautiful life. It was very much filled with joy. It was very hard at times. Mm. It did solidify for me that I do need to put myself in circumstances that force me to practice the works of mercy because right. I was seeing friends understandably kind of get situated in their late 20s, early 30s with good jobs, homes, children. And it's very easy to live in like a bubble and to not meet people different than you, who you would otherwise not meet. So you have to schedule in time in your life to meet them and to understand their story, which is so different than yours. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Amy Schleid-Mayer about the gospel and solidarity with the poor. How do you think the Catholic worker, Dorothy Day and Peter Moran's vision of a more just society. How has this formed you for the rest of your life? Has it and how has it about that? It most certainly has. Uh, Peter Morin is quoted for saying that he he wanted to build a just society in the shell of the old where it's easier for people to be good. Hmm. And so I definitely found that when you're practicing the works of mercy and staying close to the church, it is easier for you to be good. Um, For one, it's harder to complain about your own life when you're faced with the everyday harsh realities of what destitution looks like, like not poverty by choice, but poverty by, by force and circumstances. It also made me realize that I want to be doing work that invites people into relationship with the poor. So when I moved back to Nashville, my hometown, I didn't know of a job that I was really that interested in until the position at Catholic Charities came up that was the coordinator of advocacy and social concerns. I remember realizing, wow, that is the only job in Nashville right now that attracts me. <laughs> because it's a big city. I know. Yeah. But because it allows me to integrate faith and justice yeah. and to say to the Catholic faithful, this is an important part of our gospel call, and I'm going to help you like make these connections. But then also say to the wider non-Catholic community, 
hey, the Catholic Church is doing some pretty cool things, and we want to tell you about it. Mm -hmm. So it's actually very evangelical in a positive way when we think about evangelization to the wider community. And Nashville Catholics are 4% you know, right. of the population. Right. So we have to like play well with others and sit at the table and share our stories. And interesting enough, when I sit at different advocacy groups or coalitions around different issues like affordable housing or welcoming refugees, people come up to me and say, it's so good to have a Catholic here at the table. And many times they say, we're jealous of your social doctrine that gives you professional and ecclesial permission and legitimacy to be doing this work. How about that? And it feels so great. The things that always feel like their whole like Catholics might uh, bemoan like they're holding us back our doctrine right yes. Your social doctrine but they're saying no that actually liberates you to yes, do this yes exactly yeah. like it frees you to do this and actually I'm so glad that they say that but most Catholics don't even know about Catholic social teaching um, in many in many circles and so I find that a lot of um, social justice minded folks outside of the Catholic Church know more about Catholic social teaching mm. than Catholics. And it's a missed opportunity for ecumenical work because mm. I think our social doctrine pulls us out of our Catholic confines into the wider community to share this like beautiful message that we have that many people just don't know is there. And I have a lot of friends that have grown up Catholic that are still practicing but they don't know how to like make the connection. They want their family to be a part of like a service project together or they want to educate their kids about the realities of injustice that are in our community and they don't know how to do that. Yeah. And so I love getting to help them do that, whether it's on a personal level or a professional level. Yeah. I thought one of the most innovative, coolest ways that you were able to kind of model this and empower others and show them was some of these various simulations that you were helping to orchestrate and to put on in, in your work in Catholic Charities. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us, you probably can't go through all of them and exactly how they all work, but could you give us an example of what these simulations are and how they really educated, empowered, invited people? Yeah. And of course, no simulation is fully going to um, explain and reproduce the right. reality. And so I always give the caveat that this is just a small glimpse into the reality of poverty or hunger or homelessness. So there were kind of three main simulations that I ran up that I am continuing to run in many ways, but the poverty simulations, the refugee camp simulations, and hunger banquets. And the poverty simulation is probably the most powerful in many ways to introduce people to the precarious way that people in our country are living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. I think something crazy like 40% of Americans are $400 away from crisis. Mm. And if you think about $400, mm -hmm. that is a car repair, yeah. um, a medical bill. It's less than a refrigerator. Your refrigerator yeah. goes out. Right. Yeah. An appliance, like a flight for a home for a funeral yeah. of a family member. Um, and so it actually takes away the myth that people are lazy or not working hard and puts it in a real context of a family, say, of four that is really trying to get by on a very low federal, like a minimum wage or a poverty line that is way below what a family should be able to, to live on. So I 
believe that the poverty simulation and the other simulations work so well because when you enter the simulation, you actually take on the role of someone who is experiencing this injustice or just the go around kind of wild goose chase seeking services. Mm -hmm. So you're given a role, you're given a family, a biography. This is like for a day. For it's typically like a three hour experience. But it's amazing when you take on a name of a person that's based on a real client that we've served. Obviously, the names are changed like for confidentiality or whatnot. And you read their story and you have family members that are working through this with you that you've been assigned. It becomes emotional. And Mm -hmm. there's actual studies done out of Stanford, I believe, that can test the brain changes from the emotional effects of a simulation, that it's way more impactful long-term than a lecture, a video, or even like reading a book. When you feel how much time is wasted and how much anxiety and attention is given to this. experience the stress and the frustration. And when I was being trained, I went... I was playing the role of a single mom and I went to get clothing and food. I went to get food and housing vouchers. And the woman playing the social worker role said, "Mm, that blouse is ugly. I'm going (sighs) to give you some clothing vouchers. And she was playing a role. Yeah. But it like really made me like feel less about myself. Yeah. Um, And she was completely making it up. And I was thinking, wow, what if someone was already feeling low and then they start being critiqued for something that they weren't even, it wasn't even on their radar. So the poverty simulation, I've run for groups like Leadership Nashville, which are top executives across the city. I've also run it for corporations, nonprofits, schools to help them understand the reality of their customers, of their students, of their families that are part of their community better. So empathy and compassion are built Mm. and judgment and stigma are erased and dissolved. And the idea is to move people to action. So they're not just like growing in awareness, but they actually are going to do something to change the situation. And I would say with the refugee camp simulation, it's similarly powerful on another end of the spectrum because it's such a foreign concept for people to understand in the United States who haven't had to flee for their lives, mm-hmm. what that's like. Mm-hmm. And it's a really powerful way for people to enter into the refugee story. Only 1% of refugees around the world are resettled. So we don't actually hear the story of a lot of people because the people's stories we're not hearing are the ones that never make it to a third country for right. resettlement. So the seeking refuge simulation really does help build understanding and it de-otherizes the refugees. Yeah. So it's really powerful. So we're just about out of time. But on the basis of all this work you've been doing, you're hoping to kind of extend this and make this make your services like what you're able to do to empower, to show people how to do this, to make that available to lots of different people in schools and agencies and whatnot. Is that right? Yes, it is right. I've had a lot of friends that are working in schools around the country, universities, parishes that are really curious to bring these simulations to their staff, to their schools for training. And so I'm transitioning kind of into a consulting role to bring these experiences, both the simulations, but also education, presentations, and the spiritual foundation to people because those connections are often so hard to make on top of your daily, like your day job. So I'm really excited to bring 
these resources to people doing the daily work at nonprofits, at parishes, at schools. Well, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, well, at this point, email and phone are probably the best. Um, I'm kind of in a transition of creating resources and website, but I email. can be reached at, at amy.shalide, which is A-I-M-E-E. The French way for oaks, yes. A-I-M-E-E. dot Shalide, S-H-E-L-I-D-E, at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, good. Amy, thank you for spending your time with us. This thank afternoon. you so much for having good me. With you. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?